0: I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, continuing on our series through the book of Acts. As we're looking at what, is it, what does it look like to be a church that is sent out? The whole book of Acts is, is a, a series of concentric circles where the church kind of starts in Jerusalem, and then, then it begins to go out in Judea and Samaria, and then it begins to go out to the ends of the earth, and it expands even further to the ends of the earth, and it ends in the book... In, in the, In the city of Rome, as kind of this this final um, note that it is going out everywhere, right? And so it is the Holy Spirit sending out his church. So what does it look like to be a church that is sent out? What is God's desire for us as a body of believers? And so uh, we're going to continue on looking at that uh, in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16 this morning. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. It says this, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, now just a reminder of where we were the last uh, last week, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were together. They, uh, they were in the city of Thessalonica. They planted a church there, saw people come to know Jesus, but Jewish religious leaders were jealous of Paul and his ministry there, and so they kicked Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of Thessalonica. They went on to the neighboring city of Berea. Uh, they, Uh, saw people come to place their faith in Jesus they uh, had uh, they planted a church there and then uh, those religious leaders from Thessalonica they came over to Berea and kicked Paul out of there Uh, and so Paul made his way down to Athens and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up and so he says in verse 16 now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the, uh, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, in heaven of earth, heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let me pray for us. We'll get into this text this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love with which you love us. A love that is unceasing, a love that is unconditional, a love that, that we couldn't earn if we tried. And yet, God, you pour out this love upon us in unending portion. We thank you, and we thank you for that, Father. Father, we know that. That it's because of Jesus that we have access to this love. It's because of Jesus that we have access to this grace. So Father, we pray that this morning as we get into the word that we would, we would learn more about you, God. That we would, we would, uh, you would shape our mind, you would shape our actions to, to look more like Jesus. God, that you would, you would mold us and shape us in the image of Jesus so that we as a church would be better after our time in the Word this morning than before because of the time that we spent hearing from you. God, speak to us from your Word this morning. We are listening. Give us ears to hear what it is you're saying to us, God, and a heart that is ready to apply it. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, some of you have probably already figured this out, uh, but I have been told that I have perfectionist tendencies. So... Uh, I, I notice things, right? I notice details that are slightly off, and, and they, they're a little stressful to me. So we, we did a stress test when I was in uh, college as part of a, a kinesiology class that I was in. We had to hook ourselves up to, to heart rate monitors and blood pressure uh, monitors, and we had to endure a series of potentially stressful things to figure out what stresses us out as part of this kinesiology class. And so, so as part of the class, we were given a pop quiz uh, that day, we were uh, shown like, just uh, images of spiders and other creepy things, like clowns, other things on the projector. We were, uh, each one of us was told with no advance notice that we had to give up and give a two-minute speech uh, on some topic. And so, so throughout this whole thing, we're all wearing monitors, and we had to record what our heart rate was, what our blood pressure was. And just across all of these potentially stressful scenarios, it was just flatline for me. Like, it was totally fine right? Nothing stressed me out until they put a picture of Skittles on the board. And there are like seven Skittles in a line. They were all green except for one, which was yellow. But the yellow one wasn't in the middle. It was off kind of to the side. And it was slightly up. Like it wasn't in a direct line. Like it was slightly out of line. And my, I just skyrocketed. Like my heart rate, my blood pressure just like went way up. (laughs) Like this is, this is the thing that stressed me out apparently, right? Like I just noticed those, those details, those things that, that stressed me out. I was one time I was in a staff meeting at a church and I noticed uh, on the wall that there are two uh, light switches next to each other, but they're not even. One was higher than the other, and that's all that I heard in that staff meeting. I don't know what happened or what I was supposed to do. Uh, I know that the McDonald's sign in Crestwood, Kentucky, has two different colors for the word McDonald's. Like some, they changed, I guess, some of the letters out, and some are whiter than others, and the others are yellow, and there's no pattern to it. Um, and so the sign is two different colors. I know that there's a classroom at Southwestern Seminary with a big poster of Charles Stanley, and that, that poster has a typo in it. And so, like, I, I noticed, or the fact that our clock in the back has three, two twos and no threes. Like, I, I noticed, like, those kind of things, right? <laughs> and, then, uh, and, and so, like, I noticed those. And, and those things, like, burden my mind, right? They, they, they stress and impress upon and burden my mind. Now, uh, I know that those things don't matter, right? None of those things actually matter at all. But what would it look like for me to be as burdened or more burdened about things that matter as I am about insignificant little details like that? And what would it look like for us as a church to be deeply burdened, deeply impressed upon by things that matter and to allow those things to to worry us and give us, give us uh, burden us, allow those things to, to impress tears to our eyes. Like what would it look like for us as a church to be burdened by things that matter? This whole story that we're going to see this morning, it all takes place because Paul was burdened by things that matter. Paul was was deeply burdened by the lostness of the people around him. He was deeply burdened by the idolatry that he saw. And that impressed upon him, that that worried him, and that that burdened him. And so he acted on it. The whole story that we see this morning takes place because Paul was burdened by something that mattered. What would it look like for us to have that same burden? What would it look like for us to, to have that level of care? And attention to the people and the things around us and to be burdened about the things that matter. Again, where we left off last week is that Paul was by himself. He had sent letters to Silas and Timothy to come down to him to Athens, but he at this point was by himself. Now, we don't give Paul enough credit for this in the Bible, but Paul was actually really strategic. Paul was really good at creating plans and uh, designing strategies and and being really strategic of where he would go, like what would happen when he went into a city, what cities he would go to. Paul was really strategic. So if you notice, throughout, as we see throughout uh, the last few weeks, uh, the last few chapters in the book of Acts, Paul would go into a new city, and he'd go straight to the synagogue, and he would go proclaim the gospel in the synagogue. Now, that was a strategic choice on his part where he would intentionally go to the synagogue first because if there's anybody who's going to understand the message of salvation, if there's anybody that's going to understand the fact that the Messiah has come, it's the people who are waiting for the Messiah. So of all the people to start with, he would go to the synagogue because that was a strategic place to start. We even see as Paul is is drawing up plans of where he's going to go, he uh, he makes plans, he makes a decision of what cities he wants to go to Because they're strategic centers, they're good places to go to. And it's not that Paul wasn't controlled by the Holy Spirit, he was. He was led by the Spirit in all of this. And there were plenty of times recorded in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit gets rid of a plan and says, no, 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 that's a bad plan, do this instead. So Paul was led by the Holy Spirit, but he was extremely strategic. And the fact that he has written a letter asking uh, Timothy and Silas to come down to Athens gives us a pretty good insight that Paul has made a strategy. Like, Paul has made a plan for how they're going to approach Athens. And if you're a, if you're a strategic person, if you have come up with the strategy, the thing that most people would do in this case would be to wait for Timothy and Silas to get to them so that they could enact the strategy. Right? They have a plan of how they're going to reach Athens. They have a plan for how they're going to proclaim the gospel in the city. And the plan obviously involves Timothy and Silas. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have asked them to come down. And so the normal course of, of action, the normal thing that a normal person would do would be to would be to wait for Timothy and Silas to get down to Athens so that they could follow the strategy. So they could follow the plan. And that seems to be what Paul is doing. Because we see at the beginning of verse 16, Paul, uh, uh, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. He, he's sitting there waiting for Timothy and Silas to get there so they can enact the strategy. So they could do the plan. But notice what happens, second half of verse 16. But his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked, it was burdened within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So while he's sitting there in Athens, he's sitting there in the marketplace, presumably just gathering information, having casual conversations with people, learning more about the city, learning more about the culture. We know that from later on when he starts to speak. That's what he's been doing is he's gathering more information about the city. And as he's sitting there, he's sitting there in the marketplace surrounded by idols. Athens was a city full of idols, full of religious worship, and he's surrounded by idols. And he's watching as as parents take their kids and go offer incense to an idol, thinking that that God is going to deliver them. He watches as, as men and women devote their entire lives to serving these images, serving these idols, serving these things that cannot save them. He watches As people who are hurting, people who are struggling, people who are in pain are walking up to these idols and offering them offerings, offering them incense, offering them things, hoping that they'll get better, hoping that these things will fix them and satisfy them, fill them up, make them whole. He's watching all of these things take place and it is draining him. His spirit is provoked, he is burdened by the idolatry of the people around him because he knows that they are worshiping things that cannot save them. That they are offering up incense to idols that are that are nothing more than stone, nothing more than wood, nothing more than gold, that they are nothing more than an inanimate object that cannot hear them, that cannot act on their behalf, that cannot save them. He knows that they are devoting their lives and their worship to things that do not glorify God. Things that cannot give them joy in life and salvation. And his soul was burdened within him. I mean, I read that. I read of of how Paul's soul is burdened by the idolatry and I am convicted because I'm reminded that my soul is not burdened to the extent that Paul's was by the idolatry and the brokenness in the lives of the people around him. That when Paul looks around and he sees a city full of idolatry, full of people worshiping things that are not God, he is burdened by it. And I stand in a city full of people worshiping things that are not God, living their lives for things that do not glorify, do not save, do not, do not provide a life and salvation in my soul, while burden is not burdened to the level Paul's is. I'm reminded that this is, a, this is an issue worth being burdened about. As people are are giving their lives away, offering up worship to things that are not God and cannot save. Paul's spirit was provoked, burdened within him. And notice notice with me what happens in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's so burdened by the brokenness, the idolatry, and the people around him. He's so burdened by it that he has to act. He's not waiting for Timothy and Silas anymore. He's not waiting to enact the strategy. He throws the plan out the window. He's like, I have to do something about this. So he goes into the synagogues as is his normal practice. And he goes and proclaims the gospel to the Jews there in the synagogues. He lets them know that the Messiah has come. Jesus Christ has died for their salvation and he rose again to give them eternal life. Then he goes out into the marketplace. And he's talking to people every single day, letting them know that there is a God who loves them and cares for for them, that the idols that they're worshiping are not God. And he goes and proclaims the gospel, that there's a God who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you, to give you eternal life, forgiveness of sins. He rose again from the grave to give you eternal life. He's out proclaiming the gospel because his soul is so burdened by the idolatry of the people around him Notice what happens in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, two different kind of schools of philosophy there in Athens. Uh, Athens was uh, kind of the cultural center of a lot of philosophy. Uh, and so, uh, so these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were there. They're talking with him. And some say, uh, what does this babbler wish to say? Some of your translations may say idle, babbler, uh, uh, foolish talker. Uh, what, what they're what that word means is it's, it's a, a literal description of a bird going and picking up seeds and distributing it somewhere else. So what they, what they mean is this guy is basically just going and picking up ideas from other people, and he's, he's coming and spouting them as if he knows what he's talking about. Right, that's the idea that they get from Paul, that this guy has no idea what he's talking about. He's just kind of picking up some random things and throwing them out here at us, these strange ideas. This is just a, this is just a babbler, just an idle babbler who has nothing meaningful to say. But others said, no, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. He seems to be preaching and talking about gods that, that we're not used to, gods that we don't know about, gods that we don't serve, uh, and because he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And so, like good Athenians, what they decide to do is they want to take Paul, and they drag him before a council uh, that meets every single day in Athens and meets to discuss, as, as Luke kind of pejoratively says, they meet to discuss new things. <laughs> They meet to discuss ideas and philosophies because they're trying, to, they're trying to come to an idea of what's right and what's true. And so they drag Paul before this council. It's called the Areopagus. Uh, another way of saying it is Mars Hill, when you may have um, something you may be more familiar with uh, that he is dragged before, uh, to this place called Mars Hill before a council, and he has to explain himself, explain this new idea. that's what it says. In verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, that these things, uh, what these things mean. And Luke says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, partially, that's an insult to the Athenians that Luke is just throwing in here. Like, uh, they really don't, they're, all, they're, all they're doing all their time is just trying to figure out something new. But... What he means by that is that these Athenians are trying to get at the truth. Like the whole Athenian culture is built around trying to understand what is right, what is true. They want to worship what is right. And so every time there's a new philosophy, a new idea, they want to compare it to what they believe and, and weigh the pros and cons and come to a better idea of what is true, come to a better idea of what is right. And that's what, what Luke is preparing us for because that's what Paul observes about the Athenians while he's there. And that's the case that he makes when he starts his sermon. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, standing in Mars Hill, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to, to an unknown God. So Paul makes the same observation that Luke was making in verse 21. You guys are very religious. You guys are trying to find what's true. And you want to worship everything that's right, everything, everything that's true, everything that's good. You guys are very religious people and you're so religious that you have built this altar and you put on the inscription to the unknown god like if there's any god out there that we have missed if there's any like this is a this is a this is a a statement in the middle of the city that we probably haven't figured it out yet that we don't know all of the truth yet and so in case we have missed a god in case we we haven't worshiped everything as we should we're going to build this altar and say to the unknown god to the one we haven't found yet to the one we haven't figured out to the truth that we haven't discovered yet, to the unknown God. Paul looks at that and and uses that and says, obviously, you guys are very religious. You guys are doing everything you can to try to find the truth. And Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What Paul is making at the very start, like one of his major arguments that he's going to make here, is that you guys are very religious, but you've missed the mark. You guys are trying to find what's true, but you haven't found it yet. And you are doing everything you can to worship correctly, but you're off base. Because the God who created all things, he created the heavens, he created the earth, he created you, he created me, he doesn't live in temples. And he doesn't need anything from us. So he doesn't need us to offer up things for him so that, so that we can feed him, so that we can give him praise and, and satisfaction, so that we can fill up something that's empty, something that he's missing. Like he doesn't need any of that. He's the God who created everything and he's the one that provided life for you and me. He provided us life and everything that is in the earth. So he's the one that gives life. He is the giver. He doesn't need anything from us. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying all of the worship that you're doing, all of the temples, all of the sacrifices, all of these offerings to idols, you're very religious, but you've missed the mark. Because the actual God, the one who's created all things, he doesn't need any of that. He's not served and worshipped in those ways. He doesn't lack anything that we can give him. You, you're very religious, but you've missed the mark. Verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. This is a, a fascinating sentence. What Paul, and what Paul is saying here as a Jew as a former Jew, makes this even more remarkable. Because what Paul is telling this Athenian crowd, this council full of Gentiles, what he's saying is, he said, you and I are the same. God has made every single nation. God has made every single one of us from one man. So as a Jew who would have normally said that we are God's chosen people and traced his lineage back to Abraham and said I'm different than the rest of you because God chose us as a nation instead what Paul, go, what Paul does is he goes all the way back to Adam and he says God made every single one of us. This is a theme that is, that, is, that is proclaimed throughout the books of Luke and Acts. It's a theme that's proclaimed throughout the Bible but Luke makes a special point of proclaiming it throughout Luke and Acts the genealogy and the book of Luke is different from the genealogy in the book of Matthew, uh, like Jesus' heritage, where he comes from. In the book of Matthew, it's traced back to Abraham because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. But in the book of Luke, it's traced all the way back to Adam because the point is being made that Jesus is the Savior of all people, all nations, all people. God is the ruler of all people through Adam. And that's the case Paul is making here, that that God made every nation. He is the ruler, authority, deity over every single nation, every single tribe, every single tongue, every single person on the face of the earth because God made every single one of us through one man, Adam. And he has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What that's likely referring to is the fact that God has has established uh, national boundaries and allowed nations, some nations, to have prominence over others throughout history. We see this in the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk is, is crying out to God about the, the, the wickedness in Judea, in Judah. And God says, well, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to conquer Judah. And then Habakkuk says, well, the Babylonians are wicked. And God says, well, I'm going to raise up the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. Like God, God has allotted boundaries and borders, he's allotted some nations to rise up, he's allotted some nations to fall, he has allowed, uh, he has stayed sovereign over every nation throughout history. This is a proclamation to the Athenians that, that you guys are a proud people, you guys are a people that, that are, are religious, but, but at the end of the day, God is your God. God is the rightful ruler over your nation, God is the rightful ruler over your city, because just like everybody else, God made you from Adam. And God has always been the ruler and authority over your nation. That's why he says in verse 27, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Within every nation, within every border, within every boundary of peoples, there is evidence of God. Because everywhere, no matter what the nation, no matter what the the natural land features, there's evidence of God's creation. We can see the power of God. In creation, we can see the, the character of God in human consciousness and in the human consciences. Like we can see and learn about God. There's enough evidence there to, so that the people of the world could grope around and try to find God and eventually maybe find Him. But the, the reality is, and what Paul is saying here, it's what we call general revelation. The whole world was given enough within their borders to figure out that God exists and what He's like. But what Paul is saying here is you guys have missed the mark. You had everything you need to find God, to figure out what he's like, but you guys have missed the mark because you didn't have special revelation. You didn't have God's word. You didn't have God directly telling you what he's like. And so Paul is saying, let me, let me fill in the gaps for you. Let me tell you where you've missed the mark. Paul says, God is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul quotes two ideas that are, that are prominent in Athenian thought. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul quotes two Athenian thoughts, two Athenian philosophers and poets, and he says, even you guys know, just based on this general revelation, you guys have understood and come to the place of knowing that God is not far from you, that there's a God who is near you, and there is a God, that we are all his offspring. You have come to that understanding. You have come to that idea. And so Paul takes it even further. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man. He's saying, we are God's offspring. And so that should be enough to know that we don't need to worship idols. That should be enough to know that our God is a living, breathing being, and he's even better, even greater than human beings are. And so it is worthless to worship things that are human creations. It is worthless to worship things that are inanimate objects, things that cannot save, things that cannot give you life. It is worthless to worship those things because we are all God's offspring, and God is greater than us. And so that's enough information to know that you shouldn't be worshiping idols. Verse 30, and this is where Paul turns his argument. He's been saying the whole time, you guys are religious, but you've missed the mark. Look with me in verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. Now, that's a bold part of a sentence uh, in, uh, to say in, before an Athenian council. Right, this is a group that prides themselves on knowledge. Like a group that prides themselves on being philosophers, on knowing what's right. And Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked. Like he's calling them ignorant, like to their face. (laughs) Uh, But he's making the point, again, you guys have missed the mark. Because you didn't know. You have come to an incorrect idea of who God is. And because of that, you have worshipped idols. You have worshipped things that cannot save you. And those times of ignorance God overlooked. God didn't wipe you out. As a nation, God didn't wipe you out as a city for not, uh, for not believing in him. God has overlooked those. But, verse 30, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul says, you guys have not been wiped out as a nation for not believing in God. The times of ignorance, God has overlooked, you're still here, praise God, thank Him that you're still around, but the fact of the matter is that there's going to be a day of judgment. And we know that the day of judgment is coming because God has said that He will judge the world through His Son. And Jesus has already come, He's already died, He already rose again from the grave, and He's going to come back someday, we don't know when, and on that day there will be judgment for you. For worshipping the wrong God. For worshipping things that cannot save you. We are approaching a day of judgment and God is calling everyone, everywhere, and all the nations of all the world. He is calling us to repent. And to turn to Jesus. To trust in Christ for salvation. And, and God provided evidence that this judgment is coming by raising Jesus from the dead. But it says at the end of verse 31, How many people do you know that have been raised from the dead? Probably uh, no personally. Probably zero. I would be shocked if the number was higher than zero, right? Like we, it doesn't happen. People don't just rise from the dead. But Jesus did. God Himself rose Jesus from the dead. And what that, what, what that, what Paul says is that God was proclaiming that this message is true. That judgment is coming through Jesus, but that He's also the provider of life of uh, uh, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that's probably where Paul was going next. <laughs> he was going to go from there saying, we need to repent. Judgment is coming, more than likely. He was going to move from there to saying, but in this same Jesus, there is salvation. In this same Jesus, there's life. In this same Jesus, in his sacrifice on our cross, and his resurrection from the dead, there is eternal life. But he gets cut off after he mentions the resurrection from the dead. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked in uh, a lot of the Athenian thought as religious as they were there wasn't much of a paradigm of people just rising again from the dead and so they just made fun of him for it uh, and they, there are others verse 32 others said we will hear you again about this now whether this is a a gentle rejection uh, of, of Paul's message or this is genuine curiosity we don't know there's not enough information but. Paul, verse 33, Paul goes out from their midst, but in this, verse 34, some men, uh, some people, joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, he mentions Dionysius specifically, calling him an Areopagite, because this guy was influential. He was one of the members of the council that Paul was preaching to there on Mars Hill. And this guy, who's an influential, important member of the city, has placed his faith in Jesus. Like this story ends on a triumphant note that Paul went in and he proclaimed the fact that there is salvation in Jesus, that that these idol worshipers have missed the mark. And there were some in the audience that recognized what Paul was saying and that trusted and placed their faith in Jesus. And a church was planted in Athens. Believers, uh, people came to place their faith in Jesus In the city of Athens. Like it's a remarkable good ending to this story. And I want you to notice something. Silas and Timothy aren't here yet. Silas and Timothy still haven't arrived. So Paul is still by himself. And all of this happened because Paul was burdened for the idol worshippers around him. He was burdened for the idolatry that he saw. He went out and he proclaimed the gospel because he loved the people around him. And he knew that they were worshiping something that was not God. They were worshiping something that could not save them. And so he went out and he proclaimed the gospel. And a church was planted there in Athens. People came to know Jesus. This is what I want us to see this morning. We should not be content as as a small Christian sanctuary In a city of idolaters, we should not be okay to be a small Christian sanctuary in a city of idolaters. Praise the Lord for the church. Because we are a family that loves one another well, that, that cares for one another, that, that meets one another's needs. And God has, God has designed us as a church, God has designed every church to glorify him in the way that we're unified, in the way that we care for one another, serve one another, lift one another up. Praise God that there is a small Christian sanctuary in this city, that there are people who love God and have poured out their hearts in praise to him every Sunday morning that, that gather together to hear his word. Praise God that when Christ comes back, We're going to be with him forever. Like, praise God for knowing Jesus and being a small Christian sanctuary, but we are in a city that does not know Jesus. Within a five-mile radius of this church, there are 60,000 people who do not know Jesus. We could fill up two-thirds of AT&T Stadium with the people in walking distance of this church who do not know Jesus. And we cannot be content to be a small Christian sanctuary in a city full of idolaters. We need to recognize idolatry in the city around us. We have a city full of people who are worshiping things that cannot give them life, serving things that cannot save them. We have a city full of people who are worshiping the, the financial markets. We have people worshiping their uh, 401ks, their IRAs, their, uh, their, their investment accounts, their bank accounts. We have people who are, who are worshiping the markets, and we see that, especially right now in the, in the market downturn that we've had the last few months, where people just become Hopeless and desperate because they've lost so much money in the market. They have trusted in the market to provide them life. They have trusted in the market to provide everything that they need in this life. The market is their sustainer. Their bank account is what keeps them going. And so we have people that have trusted and put their entire life in their in their finances. And they are trusting in things that cannot save them, that are quite obviously temporary. We have people who have who have placed their their hope in the, uh, the affirmation of other people. A city full of people who, who are buying houses they can't afford and cars that they can't, they can't afford because they want people to notice them. They want people to like them. They want people to affirm them and love them. They, they want their kids to do really well in school. They want their kids to do really well on the sports field so they can brag to the other parents and say, well, this is what my kid did. Because they want people's affirmation. That they're a good parent, that they're a good spouse, that they're a good child. They want, they want affirmation from people. There are people living their entire lives on social media begging for likes and views because they've lived their whole life trusting in the affirmation of other people to fill up something inside of them. Hoping and trusting in something that cannot save. There's a city of people who are materialistic, a city of people who are, who are broken and hurting and trusting in things that are not God, things that will not matter when Christ comes back, and that should burden us. We should care about that. That should bring tears to our eyes as we pray for the city around us. 60,000 people in a five-mile radius of this church who will not who do not know Christ, who have no hope. And when Christ comes back, back, it'll be a horrible day for 60,000 people in a five-mile radius of this church. Because it will not be a day of hope and life. when, When Christ comes back and sets everything right for them, it'll be a day of judgment. And that should burden us. What we need to do is we need to pray that God would give us a heart like he has for the people around us. Eyes to see the brokenness around us. A heart that that loves and longs for the people around us to come to know Jesus. A heart that is burdened for the lostness and the idolatry and the brokenness of our city. A heart that, that recognizes that we work with people who do not have hope, who do not have life who do not know Jesus, and that should burden us. We have people in our families that do not know Jesus, who do not have life, who are not ready for the return of Christ, and that should burden us. There are billions of people around the world who do not know Jesus, and there are 3.2 billion of people around the world who have no access to the gospel at all. Nobody that they know and will likely live their entire lives without hearing the name of Jesus because we, aren't, we don't have enough missionaries to go out and bring the gospel to them. That should burden us. That there are thousands of people in walking distance of this church, millions of people in this state, and billions of people around the world who do not know Jesus, who are dying without hope. Like, that should burden us. We need to pray for eyes... Let's see the world as God does, a heart that is burdened. And in response, and we need to do, so we need to be like Paul. We need to go out and be creative and resourceful in presenting the gospel. Go out to where people are and present the gospel to them. Paul is very resourceful as he presents the gospel. He does a really good job of tailoring the gospel message to his audience. The message doesn't change throughout the book of Acts. Jesus Christ came. He died a death on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. He rose again from the grave to give you eternal life, and he's coming back in judgment. Like That message doesn't change throughout the book of Acts, but the way Paul presents it does. And here in Mars Hill is a beautiful example, because here he starts out talking about this to an unknown God, this, this idol that the Athenians knew, and he goes on and he uses Athenian thought, Athenian poets, Athenian philosophers to make his point for him that there is a God who, who is, uh, is not the God that they're worshiping. And so we need to meet people where they are when we go out and present the gospel. That means physically. Go out to where the lost people are and share the gospel. It means mentally. Go out to where people are. Start with their beliefs. Start with where they are and take them to the gospel. But we do that. We go and we engage the lost when we are burdened for the lost, the hurting, and the broken around us. We need a heart that is burdened. We shouldn't... should not be content as a small Christian sanctuary in a city of idolaters. Some of you this morning, the the word for you is not to go present the gospel to people. The word for you is to accept the gospel. This morning you need to be like Dionysius, uh, you need to be like Damaris, and you need to know that you're not ready for the return of Christ. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, it will not be a good day for you. Because you do not know him. You don't have the hope and the eternal life that he provides. You have been living your life worshiping things that are, are not God. Celebrating things that cannot save you. And this morning what the word of God is calling you to do is to place your faith in Jesus. To repent of your sin. To stop worshiping these other things. And to put your eyes on Jesus. If that's you this morning, you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ. To put your faith in Jesus. In just a second I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to sing and while we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. And while we sing, if that's you, I would love to talk pray with you. And then I'd love to uh, there are people who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not leave here this morning without the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is life, that there is forgiveness of sins. God, I thank you that that you are the creator and the sustainer of all things, God. That you uh, you have given us life, physical life, breath in our lungs, hearts that are beating. And God, you have also provided eternal life for us through your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that every single person here would know that eternal life. And I pray, God, that we would have hearts that are burdened for the people that do not have life. Hearts that are, are broken for the people that do not have eternal life, do not have hope, and are not ready for the return of Jesus. And so God, I pray that you would give us those hearts that are broken and hurting and burdened for the people around us. God, I pray that we would have tear-soaked pillows as we are crying out for the lost in prayer, God, as we are longing for the people around us to know Jesus. God, give this heart a burden for the lost, a passion to see people come to know Jesus. Light a fire in this building as we go out and proclaim the gospel. God, I pray that we would know your love and your grace in an unending portion in God that we would, we can't wait for the people around us to know it as well. That we we are so excited and so ready to proclaim the eternal life that is found in Jesus. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not placed their faith in Jesus, who does not know that life, God, I pray this morning, they go from death to life. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.